Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snow. seen a fish deliberately eat a bee? Zach Pope claims to have seen this in the Driftless. I've never seen a fish leap out of the water for a bee. He says it was dead and floating in the film, and no confirmation that it wasn't spit up after. I've seen dogs eat bees, and that's funny, because when a dog has a swollen face, it just makes you laugh. Speaking of bees, I don't see as many bees as I used to, and I've got a pretty big garden, and I'm outside a lot. I don't see a lot of the bugs and the populations of bugs that I grew up with. I've mentioned this on many episodes about how clean my car window is on a summer road trip. I needed some clarification as to the dwindling populations of bugs on our planet and I called up Dave Golson in England for the answers. I first learned about Dave when I picked up his book A Buzz in the Garden a few years ago at the Fairfax Regional Library. It's the kind of book you have a hangover after reading. I wanted more pastoral French garden stories. Dave is a professor of biology at the University of Sussex. He has published more than 300 scientific articles on ecology and conservation of bumblebees and other insects. His books include the Sunday Times bestsellers, The Garden Jungle and A Sting in the Tail, which was also shortlisted for the Samuel Johnson Prize and has been translated into 15 languages. He's a fellow of the Royal Entomological Society a trustee of Pesticide Action Network, and an ambassador for the UK Wildlife Trusts. His most recent book, Silent Earth, Averting the Insect Apocalypse, is out now and the basis for our discussion. Remember, you can't have a nice lawn and complain that the fishing sucks. This is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. We have Dave Golson with us. Dave, where are you right now? I'm sitting in my office in uh, a home in East Sussex, which is the southeast kind of corner of 
the UK. And it's uh, the end of a very wet, miserable February day. But uh, spring is hopefully not too far around the corner. Do you ever go looking for fossils along the coast? This end of the country is not so great. I have done. Yeah, it's good fun. I take the kids sometimes. You really need to, for the really good stuff, uh, you need to head about 150 miles west of here on the south. And that Dorset is fantastic. I, I've been fossil hunting down there, but uh, it's a little bit of a trip. But uh, far east. Yeah, that's where the really good stuff turns up usually. And are you a native to South England? Uh, no, I originated in, I was born up in Shropshire, which most people have never heard of. Uh, it's only claim to fame is that Charles Darwin came from Shropshire as well. Uh, Shropshire blue cheese. Shropshire blue cheese, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm amazed you've heard of that. It's, I, it's a pretty minor cheese, even here. But, I was uh, a former cheesemonger. So when I read A Buzz in the Meadow, and you're always talking about, uh, was it St. Agour? Oh, yeah. Andre? Yeah. yeah, I was like, oh, of course. I love it. For lunch. <laughs> so I do think the best blue cheeses come from Oregon here in the U.S. That's just my opinion. I can't, I can't, I can't argue with you because I've never tried an Oregon blue cheese to my memory. We don't, we don't get them over here, I'm afraid, but uh, you'll have to send me one. Absolutely. So you grew up up where Darwin's from. Were you always into bugs and insects and scavenging around outside? Yeah, I, I have no idea why, really. I, we were lucky. We lived in a, a little village and there was a field opposite the house and I could, you know, go and climb trees and roam around with my friends and it was there was a lot of freedom back then, and and I was for some reason, although I don't think it's that unusual. I was I I love bugs. I love catching them and keeping them in jam jars and feeding them and seeing what they turned into. And I remember collecting caterpillars when I, I mean, when I was only about five or six years old. I got into gathering caterpillars and trying to rear them up and see what they you know eventually they'd pupate and turn into a butterfly or a moth. And I thought that was just amazing. But as I say, I think actually quite a lot of kids have that phase, but usually they grow out of it. And I, I guess I was one of the few that, uh, that didn't. Were your teachers a little surprised when you bring live things into class? Well, <laughs> and the, I remember one my in the final year of primary school when I was about 10, I had a teacher who loved all that stuff. And, uh, um, you know, she used to take us out pond dipping and, and we had all sorts of stuff in the classroom, tanks full of, newts and pond skaters and beetles and uh, you name it and um, I, I i that probably you know helped to encourage me along along the road i guess fantastic and when did you decide to formalize your education with entomology and other biological subjects yeah i never i just kind of never left the education i suppose really um you know I, I did a biology degree and then i did a phd on butterfly ecology and I then sort of didn't know what to do with myself. So I, I was rattling around looking for research jobs and did got a little contract to work on beetle behavior and uh, some stuff on how to control pest moths. And then eventually managed to persuade a university to give me a permanent post and started my own research group. But uh, that was at University of Southampton. And, uh, and ever since I've, 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 had a, a very nice time really i can't believe people pay me to chase around after after bees and butterflies and things and that's what a privilege i tried doing that after college didn't work out now we chase fish a little well that's, that sounds pretty cool yeah and it, and fish that we chase live in more or less pretty cool places so i get a 
travel around and see places that people around here otherwise wouldn't see. Yeah, I mean, rivers, who doesn't love them? And, uh, and, and a lot of insect life associated with them as well. So. We do. Not as much as we used to have, which is sort of the subject of this. Uh, do you want to dive into your we can do. Yeah, I mean, talking bugs? What's, I'll let you leave I, the, the show. Well, yeah, you're in charge. But yeah, let's... Uh, so the, you know, although I, I as I said sort of been very lucky to kind of be able to turn a childhood hobby into a career that I have been a, a, aware and sort of saddened, I suppose, my whole career by the fact that insects are getting rarer. Most, most of them are in decline. And then some of the evidence is really pretty terrifying of the speed of, of decline. Um, it probably varies and we don't have data for lots of insects. In fact, for most insects, we don't have kind of long-term population data but where where we do have data it very largely shows shows they're decreasing so a couple of examples um in the uk butterflies are really closely monitored and they're down they've roughly halved in number since 1976 um uh in germany there was a study that showed the flying insect kind of biomass fell by 76 percent in 26 years which, you know, I mean, that, that was a real kind of eye-opener and that, that got a lot of newspaper coverage when it was published in 2017. Um, and, and I think did sort of perhaps do go some way towards kind of waking people up to the fact that there was a problem here. Um, there's not that much data from the US, but there are some long-term studies, particularly things like the monarch butterflies, which we know have declined by something like 80 or 90% in the last 25 years. Um, butterflies in California are monitored quite well. They're down. Um, I forget the, the exact figures. Um, seems to be a general phenomenon. Um, and there's there are not many studies of uh, aquatic insects, but a lot of insects are associated with freshwater, about 10% of insect species. Uh, and of course, many of those insects that live in rivers are, are really important food for your fish, you know, trout and salmon and whatnot. Um, mostly feed on a great number of them feed on insects. So if insects are declining, then, uh, uh, you know, that means less food, which basically is going to mean less fish you know, and also less birds. I should say fewer birds, actually, to be grammatically correct. Fewer birds, fewer bats, fewer of, of a great many things that rely on insects for food. So it's, it's yeah, I mean, it's serious stuff, actually, something that people should be paying a lot more attention to, I think. One way I noticed there's fewer bugs other than just noticing my garden in the summer, how few butterflies we have compared to my childhood. My car window in the summer doesn't have to be cleaned from the guts. Yeah, I knew you were going to. That was where you were going. So many people. It's it's the only aspect of insect declines that most people have noticed. You know, most people don't pay any much attention to insects. But if you're. I don't know, middle-aged-ish. I'm not sure exactly how old you are, but I'm 56. And, you know, I can vividly remember. That, I mean, they were, they were a real pain to get off. You know, you had to scrub at them to get those all those dried insect guts off the, you know, when they were dried on. I actually used to ride a motorbike and, and you just couldn't see anything. It got quite dangerous. You just have to stop and, and scrape it clean and wash it. Um, and at some point that stopped happening. Um, uh, exactly when, you know, it seems to vary depending on who you talk to or not. And our memories are always a bit kind of um, 
you know, uh, woolly about the exact details of things that happened decades ago. But I guess it was somewhere between 1970 and 1990. They just they just fizzled out. Maybe a bit more recently than that in some parts of the world. But uh, um, but anyway, yeah. Now you can you can drive hundreds of miles on a beautiful sunny day or at night uh, when you used to get moths um, splattered all over your windscreen. And, you know, windscreen's basically still spotless or probably one or two little splats, but, you know, nothing, nothing to notice really. Um, yeah, it's, it's concerning. One of the major reasons bugs are going away is pesticides. Can you tell us about the research you did with the, and I'm going to not say it right, the neo Nictinoids? <laughs> yeah, that'll do. Nix is what it's usually abbreviated to because it's a lot easier to say. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to know where to start. There's so much one could say about pesticides. But, you know, we, 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 we introduced pesticides after the Second World War and they, everyone thought they were great for the first few years. Um, didn't realise all the side effects that you would get. Um, which was pretty naive with hindsight. But anyway, Rachel Carson wrote her book, Silent Spring, in, in um, 1962, I think it was, which highlighted, uh, you know, that they're actually, these chemicals were doing a lot of harm. And some of the worst ones, things like DDT, were, were largely banned eventually, although it took, took a while. Um, and I think a lot of people thought the problem was solved, but the reality is it's got a lot worse. Um, we now have many, many more pesticides um, that are applied much more frequently um, than in Rachel Carson's day. And some of them are much more toxic than things like DDT uh, ever were. And that includes these neonicotinoids. They're a new generation of insecticide. They came on the market in the mid-1990s. And, and weight for weight, they're about 7,000 times more poisonous to insects than than DDT was. Um, and we're using them all over the world, you know, they, and they're, they're quite persistent. So if you put them on a crop, they get into the soil, they stay there for years, and they can accumulate if this farmer uses them every year. They leach into rivers, uh, and we can come back to that. Uh, but for actually, the thing that my research has mostly focused on is, is the effects on bees, because they're my kind of pet subject, um, particularly wild bees like bumblebees. And these chemicals are systemic, so they, they, um, they go into plants, they can be sucked up from the soil by the roots of a plant and they spread through its tissues and they go into, if it's a flowering plant, they go into the pollen and the, the nectar, which is how they get consumed by bees. And there's been a lot of study on this and it's pretty clear that basically, that, I mean, that, not surprisingly, you know, these are neurotoxins that are unbelievably poisonous to to bees and we know bees are consuming them all over the world um it takes it takes just um four billionths of a gram to give a lethal dose to a honeybee which to to put that into a kind of something you can perhaps get your head around better it means that one teaspoon of one of these neonicotinoids five grams um is enough to give a lethal dose to one and a quarter billion honeybees um which would be enough to to fill roughly four full-size, long, you know, long wheelbase lorries uh, with dead bees, just with one teaspoon. And we, we're applying thousands of tons of this stuff to the landscape, which isn't good, but it's certainly not good for, for insects. 
there's been less work done on effects on on river insects, but still quite a bit. Um, there's there's been some quite detailed studies from the Netherlands um, that I'm aware of that have found basically that the parts of the Netherlands with higher levels of these insecticides in the water, there are fewer insects in the water, which, you know, I mean, no shit. It's, it shouldn't really surprise us if, if we've got rivers full of insecticide, that there are many insects left. I should say that these pesticides are not the only issue that insects face. There's lots of others. There's lots of other types of pollutant. Um, there's been a lot of habitat destruction around the world. We've got problems with invasive species, with non-native diseases, with climate change starting to kick in. So there's this whole kind of raft of problems that we're creating for, for for insects and for wildlife in general. Um, but, but in the case of insects, there's no doubt that these pesticides are, are playing quite a role. Insect extinctions are rather rare. I remember as a kid reading the only bug that had ever been declared extinct was the earwig on Elba, where Saint Napoleon Elena. ended up. But yeah, no, sorry, sorry to correct you. Oh. St. Uh, Helena, not Elba. St. Helena. By being the two islands where Napoleon was was uh, imprisoned, <laughs> uh, Saint Helena is way way down in the South Atlantic, um, and but it had this giant earwig. I don't suppose Napoleon saw it, but uh, but it used to be there. Are there any insects species or populations that are in severe threat of extinction or decline due to pesticides in humans? Yeah, well the. It's a really interesting question to which we don't have a good answer, really. I mean, there are there are 1.1 million known species of insect and estimated to be maybe another 3 million that we haven't even named yet. Of course, we don't know exactly how many because we haven't named them. But there is an awful lot of insects and most of them nobody's counting. Um, and so how would we know if one went extinct or was about to go extinct? Um, there's only a handful of insects that, that have been officially declared extinct, and they're almost all insects that were that found on small islands, uh, where it's it's relatively easy to search and show that there aren't any more, like the giant earwig. Um, but for for example, something like 25%, no, I think it's 30% of the world's bee species haven't been seen for 25 years doesn't mean they're extinct they could be extinct we just haven't got a clue no one's seen one no one's looked for one probably in most cases so it's you know we know that the abundance is declining but it's really hard to say how many species have actually gone extinct or how many species are likely to go extinct in the next year or 10 years or whatever we just don't know but if if abundance continues to decline then you know it's kind of inevitable that uh, lots of species will eventually go extinct do you feel guilty when you have to do collections and bugs end up dead? You got to put them in the bug I, I jar. I do. I do. We, we've, in fact, I pretty much stopped doing them. And I, I, so for years and years, I defended the work of entomologists collecting insects and killing them because, I mean, it is valuable. You know, there's no way we would have known about all the insects that exist. You, you can't describe a new insect, for example, without having one on a pin that you can show to people and log, put in a museum as the type specimen that others can refer to. Um, and there are a lot of insects that you can't accurately identify without killing them, sadly. Um, so, so kind of it's a part of research in the entomological world. And, but I, I must admit, I, these days I avoid doing it because I, I find it quite hard to reconcile sort of campaigning for protection of insects and then killing a whole load of them. Even if 
I can say it's in it's for you know legitimate purposes, um, and that it's kind of you know improving our scientific knowledge of what's happening with insects. It still makes me really uncomfortable. So I desperately try and find ways to to not kill insects anymore. Do you have any insect tattoos? I don't. I don't have any tattoos at all. And while we're speaking of insects and bees, what are some facts and things that people listening now would probably not come across unless they were hearing you speak? Some just fascinating bee things. Oh, where do I start? I mean, there are so many weird things about bees. <laughs> so um, uh, this is a bit of a ridiculous statistic. So a uh, um my um, a running man uses the calories in a in a Mars bar. Do you have Mars bars? You do. I think. We do, yeah. but they're different. And my dad has always kept the ones from Scotland in the freezer, and we were never allowed to eat them. His <laughs> predate the changing of the formula. They were changed like ten years ago, and he still has these from the Orkney Islands in '97. And well, he moved. I, I don't know. And took them with him. Excellent. I, I have no idea whether this statistic relates to Scottish Mars bars, the old formula, the new formula, but very roughly. Uh, so I'm told um, a, a running man, but it takes about an hour to burn the calories in the Mars bar. But if you were a, a man-sized bumblebee, you'd burn those calories in 30 seconds. Um, basically, it uses tons of energy to keep them in the air. They have to flap their wings about 200 times a second uh, to stay in the air. Um, and they generate heat. Uh, so it, uh, bumblebees are warm-blooded. They, um, they, 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 a bit more like birds and mammals than they are other insects. They generate heat internally and keep it in with their furry coat, which means they can live high up in the Arctic, in Alaska, in the Arctic Circle. There are bumblebees flying around in places way too cold for most insects to, to fly. Another bumblebee fact, pretty much every tomato you've ever eaten was pollinated by a bumblebee specifically rather than another kind of bee or pollinator or whatever. Um, because because um, tomatoes have to be vibrated to, to, to pollinate them, to get the pollen to fall out of the flower. And honeybees and most pollinating insects can't do that, but bumblebees bite the flower and buzz their fly muscles, and that makes the pollen drop out. And uh, so hence the, the, their... They've been they're reared commercially in factories um, and sold to people with glass houses to pollinate their tomatoes all over the world. Um, yeah, so um, there are twenty thousand species of bee in the world. Um, I think many people. I think there's just one or two. Um, so um, yeah, there's way more than most people realise. Um, and pollination isn't just done by bees. Sorry, I'm just randomly throwing what it might be facts. Um, you know, a lot of people, I think, mistakenly think that the honeybee pollinates everything. Um, but actually, there are, there are tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of insects that pollinate. Um, bees, wasps, butterflies, moths, beetles, flies, all sorts of creatures. And most of them don't get much credit for it. But they, between them, they make sure that three quarters of the crops that we grow in the world get pollinated. Because most things we grow need insect pollinators to give a a good harvest, everything from the tomatoes I just mentioned to strawberries and raspberries and blueberries and um, squashes and pumpkins and even things like coffee and chocolate need insect pollinators. Um, so, you know, we'd be in big trouble without them, really, which is why 
just from a purely selfish perspective, people should care about these insect declines because, you know, I think people don't realize that insects are important. If you live in a city, you, the only insects you see are probably ones that you'll swat because they'll be, it'll be a housefly or a mosquito or whatever. But love them or loathe them, you know, insects, insects do amazing stuff that we all depend upon. They help to kind of make the world go round. They don't just pollinate. They do a whole bunch of other things there. Um, as we mentioned, food for lots of stuff. They're recyclers of dead bodies and dead wood and leaves and, and all sorts of other material, animal dung, um, which is really important as part of nutrient cycles that releases the nutrients that plants need to grow, that crops need to grow. Um, they do all sorts of stuff, basically. Um, and uh, we, should, uh, we, should, we should look after them better than we have. You mentioned recently in a Twitter post that wildflowers are starting to blossom earlier. We have crocuses outside and it's 24 degrees right now. How will that affect bugs that are still maybe dormant when the flowers are opening up? Yeah. So there is a worry that, that um, you, you, we might end up with a mismatch between when certain insects are flowering and, and uh, sorry, <laughs> insects don't flower, when certain insects are flying and the flowers they need are flowering. Um, and, and that, I mean, of course, things are tending to happen earlier because, you know, of, of climate change. And if everything happened a little bit earlier, that would perhaps be OK because the crocuses would flower earlier, but the bees would come out earlier. But if they use if the different if the plants and the insects are using different cues, say one's using temperature and the other one's using day length, well, the temperatures got warmer, but the days aren't getting longer, um, you know, with climate change. Um, so then you could end up with flowers flowering with nothing to pollinate them um, or bees emerging when there's no flowers or, um, you know, some sort of disaster along those lines. There's not really clear evidence so far that that's happened with pollinators. There's, there's more evidence that some caterpillars um, are emerging at the wrong time for the leaves that they need to eat. Um, and there are, so there are quite a few moth species that time their egg laying to, to, with the bud burst because the young leaves of trees are, are much more palatable and they become really tough and full of tannins and stuff that insects can't eat within a few weeks so there's a little window in early spring when the leaves are bursting which the cat the moths want to hit for their caterpillars and if they get that wrong either they're too early or too late their offspring have had it basically um so it's not just pollinators that have to get the timing right and and yeah um this is definitely an issue, although not one we really understand too well as yet. Are there any bees that are migratory like hummingbirds? Ooh, um, that's a really good question. There, I can't think of any really good examples other than we know that um, the bumblebees um, do seem to occasionally indulge in kind of long distance flights and they can, you'll, they're caught out at sea sometimes at light boats. Um, you know, tens or hundreds of miles from land. Uh, and what they're doing there is pretty obscure. It's usually queen bumblebees. Um, I'm sure there must be a migratory bee. There's 20,000 species of them, but I must admit none of the ones that I study um, migrate routinely. Speaking of bees out in sea, did you ever get to meet E.O. Wilson? No, I, I've heard him talk live, but I never actually had a chance to have a chat with him. And uh, yeah, it was a sad day. It was a few weeks ago, wasn't it? When he Yeah, that was always on my list. He was, he was down here doing a, 
event on the National Mall a couple of years ago, and I just couldn't get to see him. That was my one bucket list chance to go out and shake his hand. Yeah, he, he's a cool guy. I mean, really clever and passionate and did a great job of kind of um, promoting insects over the years. Um, and I really liked his, you know, he, he promoted, uh, most people think it's crazy, but Half Earth, he wrote a book called Half Earth, which is basically advocating that we should uh, set aside half the world for nature, which um, I, you know, would be pretty hard to do. But I think it's a brilliant idea. And, uh, you know, we do need to do something radical um, if we're going to look after all the amazing stuff that lives on our planet. And uh, um, that would certainly be one way of going about it. I think I read a statistic that if we were able to dedicate 4.6 billion acres in America, we can maybe bring back the monarchs to what they used to be. That's a lot of land to set aside. It sounds like a lot, doesn't it? Uh, but yeah, it, we need to find a way somehow to kind of reconcile, you know, we've got to grow food, we've got to build roads and houses and all the rest of it, but we also need to you know, leave space for the rest of life on earth. And, uh, you know, we, I mean, it's amazing when you think about it, you know, we live on this rock hurtling through space with this kind of little crust of, of living organisms clinging to its surface, you know, it really is extraordinary. And we kind of forget it, you know, we take it for granted really. Um, but it, it is every, it's our home and it gives us, uh, you know, food and it's, it's beautiful and, and, we need to look after it. Um, and if that means making some sacrifices, then I think we, you know, we have to make them in the long term for the, you know, good of our children and grandchildren and, and, and so on. I, I remember I saw a study not that long ago. Um, uh, it was focused really on birds, but it, it, was, it was trying to work out what it would cost if you were going to set up a, a network of nature reserves that targeted all the world's rarest birds so that they all had somewhere protected for them to live. And I think they estimate, I don't hold me to this, but I think it was something like $17 billion a year it would cost to, to maintain that, which sounds like a lot of cash. But then the, the, the authors of this study, put that, to put that in context, they pointed out that it was just 20% of the global spend on fizzy drinks each year. Wow. You, think, you know, if, that, if it just means missing one can of Coke in five, you know, I think I could live with that. Yeah, and so, you know, it's, it is within our power to, to do it if we really want to, you know, we, we could do anything. You know, we're an amazingly powerful creature if we put our minds to things. It's, the trouble is we're putting our mind to the wrong things, I think, at the moment. Do you have carpenter bees in the UK? Very rarely. They're common in France, um, just, just across the channel. And we get them, particularly in recent years, probably climate change. We've had them turning up fairly regularly on the south coast where I, near to where I live. I've not seen one myself yet. Amazing bees. I love them. Um, I know I, it makes me sad, actually, because particularly in the States, it's quite common for people to, to treat them as a pest. And that's spray. Gonna... Oh, that's oh, where you were going. Yeah. People always swat at them. So we always have them flying around the, the carport and the garage. And then there's a famous fishing spot in Virginia called Rose River Farm that has a wooden gazebo. That if, if you have a student that wants to study them, that is the highest concentration I've ever seen is at this gazebo. But people always swat at them and try and kill them with tennis rackets and whatever. And they're completely harmless. And that just... Yeah, and they're pollinators, they're beautiful. Why on earth? I, this kind of intolerance just drives me nuts. I mean, they, to be fair, they are 
they they call carpenter bees for a reason. They they the, the adults burrow into timber to, to nest, normally in dead trees and branches and so on. But uh, but they will, you know, maybe this gazebo, maybe they're borrowing into that. And but it will the amount of damage they do is pretty small. You know, give them a thousand years and it might collapse. But you know, in the grand scheme of things, I don't think that's such a big deal. It's the woodpeckers that come and hit the deck pylons and destroy them. I remember coming home from high school one day and seeing the deck. Just I thought it'd been hit by lightning during the day. It was blue skies, but a woodpecker had gone after one in the rail and destroyed my parents' entire deck rail. Actually, so often the, the things the woodpeckers are after are things like the, the bee larvae in their holes. Um, you know, the, the, the woodpeckers are pecking away at dead timber, trying to get to insect larvae of one type or another. Uh, and, and quite often it would be those carpenter bees. And then there's just regular bumblebees and honeybees. Anything that flies past people, they leave it alone. But when there's a bee just minding its own business, everyone wants to freak out thinking it's going to attack them when it has no <laughs> idea who they are. And that's how they get stung. That bee was minding its own business, didn't know you're there. Start swatting at it with your purse. Now it's angry. I just I don't get people uh, that swat at bees. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. It's crazy, isn't it? I, I think it just, I don't know, it's its a lack of familiarity, a lack of knowledge and understanding, you know. I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it, that we, we're panicked by something that, that, that must weigh about a millionth, of, I mean, it's, it's a tenth of a gram, a honeybee, you know. It's a minute little creature. Um, and as you say, it doesn't have any, any desire to come and sting you. It will only do it if it thinks it's going to die. Um, so, you know, leave the poor things alone. Are there any bugs on your bucket list that you want to travel to see, haven't found yet? Oh, loads, loads. I mean, mostly bees, because I am a bit, a bit tunnel vision on bees. But uh, there's, a, there's a type of carpenter bee, the blue carpenter bee, uh, which lives in uh, China, which is, which is a kind of turquoise blue, really beautiful looking thing. I've seen photographs of it. Um, love to see one of those. Um, and I'd love to, I, I actually went to Argentina a few years ago looking for the, the world's biggest bumblebee, which is in, um, sadly, it's disappearing because of um, introduced European bumblebees are spreading across South America at the moment. And it's a bit of a sad story, which I went to kind of find out a bit more about. But I I'd failed to find this world's biggest bumblebee, which the, the queens are said to be like kind of flying mice, the huge, great things. Um, I know someone who once had one of those splat into his windscreen and uh, left quite a quite a mess, unfortunately. Um, I'd love to go back and try again. They're still there in, in remote parts of the, the Southern Andes. Um, and it's a beautiful part of the world. But uh, sadly, last time I went, I couldn't find one. Would those introduced bees be like the ones you can buy that are raised in a warehouse? Or are those people smart yeah, enough not this- to release... They're the same ones that that are reared for tomato pollination in Europe. Um, The buff-tailed bumblebee is the commonest bumblebee in in Britain. Uh, Lovely, lovely bees, um, but they're not supposed to be in South America. 
Um, and the, the real problem is not the bees, it's actually the European bee diseases that we took with, that they spread. Um, so unfortunately, they didn't quarantine them. They didn't check that they were healthy and free of disease before they shipped them. They actually, they took them to Chile. Um, it was a government-sponsored project in 1998, um, when you'd think we'd have learned our lesson about invasive species and how problematic they can be. Apparently not. We're not very good at learning lessons. The whole Potomac River from the saltwater upstream is full of Eurasian snakeheads. And they grow four feet long almost. And they're, someone dumped three or four of them in the river and they're everywhere. Yeah. And you can't undo these things once you've done them. That's the trouble. Yeah. It's impossible. Certainly with insects, you know, there's so many of them. How on earth do you eradicate them? And it sounds like those snakeheads are going to be pretty tricky as well. Absolutely. Um, but they're, people say they're good to eat. So people are constantly shooting them with arrows or attaching them. Well, I suppose that's um, something, but uh, yeah, uh, clearly not going to get rid of them all. Yeah, it's really fr frustrating. Um, people are, are, are uh, do we just repeat the same mistakes over and over again, it, it seems. And uh, the, that South American example is, is one such. If you could go back in time, five, 6,000 years before people were transporting things all around the world, where would you want to go to see bug life before it was all screwed up? That's an interesting one. I mean, actually, it's it's a bit of a boring answer, but uh, but I'd quite I'd quite like to just stay on the spot and see what was here where I'm sitting thousands of years ago. Even actually hundreds of years ago would be really interesting because um, because I think that you know the big decline of of life is is pretty recent. It came, you know came with the followed the industrial revolution and the industrialization of agriculture and the massive increase in human population, which is all, you know, relatively recent, last couple of hundred years, really. Um, and and I, there are accounts written in the 1800s which describe, you know, enormous numbers of, of butterflies and other insects um, in, in Britain, which, you know, I, I, it's unimaginable to me that these things could have existed in huge swarms, but, but they did really just a few lifetimes ago, human lifetimes ago. Um, so that would be pretty cool. I mean, the, the, uh, uh, I'd, I'd, be, I'd love to see what Britain was like um, uh, historically. You know, and we know you can read books about it, but it's not the same as being able to actually go. And nobody in hundreds of years ago was really studying insects in great detail. Um, but uh, that, all of that said, um, if you just want to want to see shitloads of insects in in pristine habitat, there are still thankfully places left in the tropics, which are just heaven if you like insects. You know, amazing places. I was lucky enough to go to Borneo. You don't need a time machine, basically. It's still there, thank God, for the moment. Um, bits of Borneo, bits of Peru, Brazil, uh, Ecuador, and so on, where you know you can see more or less unchanged. Um, amazing kind of communities of wildlife. And uh, yeah, we just, you know, that, I mean, it's so important that we hang on to those um, so that, you know, they're there for, well, forever, hopefully. Do you have a good bee joke that usually goes over well? <laughs> I only have one bee joke and it's awful. Um, what type of bees produce milk? Boobies. Yeah. Sorry. That's, uh, <laughs> the, that's the... Halloween joke about scaring a, a bee and you get boobies. Uh, yeah, they're all bad. 
Yeah. That one's a good BJ, but I'm I'm aware of, yeah. So but you no, no, if you if you ever do find hear a good BJ, please let me know. Will do. You started the Bee Conservation Trust in 2006. How's that going? Almost yeah, 20 years later. Yeah. The the I, I should say it's the Bumblebee Conservation Trust. So specifically focused on to, to distinguish it from honeybees, because there are loads of organizations that look after honeybees and beekeepers look after honeybees and so on. And um, it's, it's really the Bumblebee Conservation Trust is focused on on wild bees, mainly bumblebees. Um, and it's it's I mean, it was a it was an absolute shambles to start with, if I'm honest. Uh, when we, we I had no idea what I was doing, you know. I was an academic with no no kind of real world useful experience of anything starting trying to start what's basically like a small business you know um but we didn't have any staff we didn't have any money we didn't have any members um so it 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 was pretty slow off the mark well actually yeah it wasn't that slow off the mark but uh, anyway um we made a lot of mistakes and uh it was chaos to start with we we literally had people wanting to join sending us checks through the post and we lost a load of the checks and we typed in the addresses wrong so they never got their membership packs and it was it was an absolute shambles um but now i should say it has transitioned slowly it took a long time um, but now it's got about 40 odd staff and it's all very professional. I have almost nothing to do with it anymore, um, which is probably why it's professional. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's got about 12,000 members. It's created, I've lost track of how many um, bits of, you know, nature reserves, habitats, flower filled meadows created for bees. Um, and it does a lot of good outreach and education. And it's, I mean, Sadly, still a drop in the ocean compared to what needs to be done, but it's doing great stuff. And uh, that's, you know, so I guess it's probably the, the single thing I've done that I'm most pleased with so far. Is there a, you mentioned that bumblebees are warm blooded. Is there a temperature where they're inactive? That's when I usually try to pick them up and I'll walk to school with my daughter on a fall day, my arm just covered in bumblebees. Yeah. So it's not the air temperature that's the problem. It's basically they, they, if, uh, if they run out of energy so i mentioned earlier you know how they need to to that loads of um calories to keep them in the air basically which means lots of sugary nectar um so if they've got the energy they they can to, to fly a bumblebee needs to have its internal body temperature needs to be above 30 degrees centigrade i don't know what that is in fahrenheit but uh, similar to human body temperature and if they're not that warm, they can't flap their wings 200 times a second, so they can't take off. Um, so they, they shiver to warm their flight muscles up, and they get warmer and warmer until they get to 30-plus degrees, and then zoop, off they go. But that requires loads of energy. And if they, if they haven't got enough food on board, then they can't do that. And then they're, they're stuck, basically. They're in trouble. That's when you see them walking on the ground. Um, it's not because the air is too cold. It's because they haven't got the sugar to warm themselves up, basically. Um, so, I mean, I, I, one of my first memories of bumblebees actually is trying to rescue some of those sort of, you know, sad looking bees that are sitting on the ground. And, uh, but I, I, I was only about seven and I, um, for some reason I thought it'd be a good idea to put them on that. I, we have one of these old electric hot plate cookers. Um, oh, no. I, I stuck the poor thing, I put, they put it on the lowest setting, you know, number one. And it's, it was one of those things that they take ages to warm up. So I put the bees on the plate and I put a bit of tissue paper over them to kind of keep them warm. A bit ridiculous, really. 
but anyway, I, and the, I, I got bored waiting for them to warm up and wandered off. And um, you can guess what happened, basically. Next thing, my mum was shouting because of the smoke and uh, the tissue paper had caught fire and the, the bees were uh, uh, frazzled, poor things. But uh, what I should have done and what I would recommend to anyone to do, if you do find bees like that, get, just give them a bit of sweetened water, a bit of sugar water. And uh, usually um, they'll 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 fire up their flight muscles and warm up and, and fly off. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes they've got something else wrong with them, um, you know, a disease or they've been hit by a car or who knows what, and they're not going to get better, whatever you do. Um, but uh, it's, it's definitely worth a try. And very often it does work. Bit of sugar water. One of the things we're all trying to do is plant pollinator gardens. And you mentioned high caloric nectar. Are there plants that are known to have more high caloric nectar or more nectar glands that produce more so we can specifically give yeah. them more food than giving out a, a pretty flower that doesn't feed them as much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of studies been done on this uh, and flowers vary enormously in how, uh, how much nectar they produce and how concentrated the sugar is. Um, uh, the sugar in nectar can be anywhere between about five and 50%. Um, and some plants produce barely any tiny, tiny amounts um, that are really hard to measure on, uh, in any way. Um, and others produce, you know, so much that it almost drips out of the flower that you can actually taste it yourself. Um, so some of the best ones, I mean, um, borage, which is often grown as a herb, is really, really rewarding. The, the bees, well, there's my borage for the year. I'm growing oh, there it. There we year. go. Yeah, a little yeah, yeah. brilliant. Um, really easy to grow, isn't it? Beautiful, and you can you can put the flowers in salads if you like. But I prefer to leave them for the bees. Um, uh, Phacelia, I don't know if you've come across that. Sometimes called scorpion weed. Uh, it's that's a North American annual, actually. Um, incredibly uh, att attractive to bees. You know, bees are really good. They they learn which flowers are most rewarding, and they just ignore all the ones that don't give them much food. Um, and sort of focus on the on the best ones. Um, so that so the bees will tell you which flowers in your garden are most rewarding. But I yeah I've written um, I, I've written a book uh, one of my many uh, called Gardening for Bumblebees, which is basically a more than half the book is about all the different plants that are really attractive to, to bees because they produce lots of nectar or pollen. Um, so but yeah, there's lots of advice out there. Um, you can find a lot online. I also made loads of YouTube videos if anyone's interested. And although, of course, they're, they're UK, you know, my garden is in the UK. Um, actually, many of the plants I grow are available in garden centers in the US. Um, some of them, um, like Echinacea is a good bee plant, comes from the US. Seleniums, sneeze, Sneezewort, I think it's sometimes called, is a North American plant. Um, there's quite a lot of North American plants that we grow in our gardens and vice versa. You grow a lot of stuff that's from Europe. I think borage is from Europe off the top of my head. I'm trying to grow a lot of mountain lupine this year, not native, but I've been trying it and I got them to grow from seed. I got six of them. I'm very excited. Excellent. Now lupins are, are great for bees. They, the pollen in particular is, uh, is really rich in nitrogen and protein. So they, yeah, uh, that's mainly what they go for. Have you ever seen a, fish eat a bee no no that would be quite interesting to see what would happen actually i mean you do occasionally see honeybees in particular will occasionally get you know crash into water and uh, get stuck in the in the surface tension 
And I imagine a tribe would find that hard to resist. But uh, um, but no, I also think it would probably spit it out pretty quickly afterwards. But uh, uh, you do get lots of uh, things like pond skaters will eat bees if they get stuck in the water. Really? But, but as for the fish, yeah, I mean, I, I guess mostly fish, are, it's the, the real favourites are things like um, mayflies, aren't they, which... Uh, uh, you know, you, the, where, where the, the larvae, of the nymphs, I should say, are aquatic, and it's the it's the adults that are just short lived and get these lovely swarms in late spring, and the, that attract trout and salmon and so on. And I'm sure they eat lots of other insects too, but that's those are the ones that fly fishermen usually target. Um, Absolutely, yeah. It's well known that the queen is a huge fan of my show. Anything you want to tell her while you're on? Ah, uh, well, Queenie. About bees? Uh, well, she does. So I signed a petition, relative, a petition, a letter relatively recently uh, asking the, the royal family to, uh, to rewild half their estate. A bit of an E.O. Wilson request, really. Because um, uh, they're the royal family. They own massive amounts of land. I mean, Britain is one of those. It's, it's still almost in a feudal system, if I'm honest. You know, we... we most of Britain is owned by a very small number of people and half of them are members of the royal family. Um, things haven't really changed for a thousand years. And a lot of that land isn't used for very much, really. I mean, some of it is farmed, um, but a lot of it is shooting estates up in Scotland, um, which, you know, are just visited by a few rich folk who want to go and shoot grouse or red deer um, once a year or whatever and pay a fortune for the privilege. Um, they're, they're usually pretty rubbish for for wildlife um, and they don't need to be like that you know they they could be turned over to nature with no real downside i think so we're, i'm still crossing my fingers that the queen might uh, uh, might be thinking of doing that but uh, um she hasn't replied yet that i'm aware but uh, yeah, she'll listen and hopefully get back to us soon well i'm sure i'm sure she'll tune in and uh, yes. perhaps this will be the final straw that will get her to act speaking of the royals and uh, it makes me think of welly boots uh, I'm in the, the market for new boots. What do you wear when you're out and about doing field work? I usually wear uh, um, a, a Blundstone Australian walking boots. Well, not walking boots, just kind of work boots. You come across Blundstones? I have a similar pair made by um, Ariat. I'm actually on my third pair. I'm about to buy my fourth pair. They're the most comfortable boots. I can wear them in anything. Yeah, they're known so as like did you say that? Ariat. What was the name again? A-R-I-A-T. They're called the Spot Hog. I've never, never seen them here, but they, they might be around somewhere. They're only about $110 retail. And like I said, I've had, I'm on my third pair in 20, some, 20 years now. Actually, yeah. My feet haven't changed size. So I just keep wearing them. Well, that's, that's perfect, isn't it? You know, I, I hate throwing stuff away, so I make everything last as long as I can. The nice thing about working on insects is they're only really busy on night, in nice weather, so you don't usually need kind of, uh, you know, super waterproof wellies or whatever. And uh, Normal walking boots are fine. Do you have any advice for people that are obsessed with their yard and lawn and spend all their time making sure there's no flowers and just wasted grass? <laughs> Yeah, no, when you said it got any other thoughts, that was that I should have come up with that. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, gardens have huge potential, I think, to, to be kind of, you know, to, to contribute to looking after nature, insects in particular. 
um, uh, you know, just imagine, I mean, I, I don't know what it's, how many gardens there are in, in the US, but just in the UK, um, we have about 22 million private gardens and, and they cover an area of it's about a million acres, which is a bigger area than all of our nature reserves. Um, and lots of people are, are interested in making them a bit wilder and, you know, inviting insects in, um, which is all really about um, growing the right plants, you know, the ones that produce lots of nectar and pollen native wildflowers wherever you can, um, being a bit tolerant of weeds, um, not spraying pesticides in your backyard. You know, why would you use poison where your kids play and your dogs play and so on? It seems nuts to me. And you don't need them in a garden. Uh, don't mow the lawn too often. Um, I, I know this can be problematic in some parts of the States because local kind of laws say that you can't let the grass get too long, which um, I find really sad. But, um, but thankfully, well, most places don't have that. And, uh, I, I, and lawns can be full of flowers. Um, there's this amazing, so I'm rambling slightly, but there's this amazing book called The Wildlife of a Garden that was written by a, a lady called uh, uh, Jenny Owen. Uh, I don't know if she's still alive. If she is, she must be really ancient. But she lived in Leicester, which is a big city in, in sort of northern England. Another cheese town, Red Leicester. Yeah, absolutely. Although that's not my favourite, I must admit, but... Uh, I always thought Red Leicester was a bit boring. But anyway, um, she she lived in it. She had a little garden in near the city centre, but she spent 35 years identifying everything she could find that turned up in her, her garden. Um, and, and I mean, 35 years, impressive effort. Um, at the end of that, her species list for a little garden was 2,673 different species of animal and plant, which I think is just mind-blowing, you know, I mean... Nearly 2,000 species of insect in, in, in her little garden and then you know, the rest were birds, mammals, plants, so on, fungi. Um, but, you know, I would have guessed that would be the sort of figure you might find in a rainforest or something, not in a, you know, a little urban garden. So it just goes to show, you know, there are thousands of insects that will, that, that will happily live alongside us if we just kind of, you know, invite them in and they're a bit more, a bit less tidy and... Uh, bit more tolerant and don't wave our hands around trying to kill everything that comes near us like people often do yeah so yeah you know i'm very much in favor of uh, wild gardening or whatever you want to call it i'm going to get a propane blowtorch this year to kill the weeds i don't know if yeah. you have those there but you basically just plug it into a tank and just torch them well it's certainly better than herbicide i mean obviously it's fossil fuel so there's a downside to that but uh but I mean, Roundup glyphosate, um, which is the main herbicide people use, has become, you know, notorious. And all these court battles over whether or not it's caused cancer, which so far have all gone the way of the plaintiffs and, you know, the jury have found that it does cause cancer. It's a lot of scientific evidence pointing in that direction. Um, uh, why would you use stuff in your garden or, you know, it, it, near your, I mean, if you grow your own vegetables, Christ is mad. Um, you know, you do not want that stuff on them. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's it's bizarre that people use these really nasty chemicals um, in their in their backyards. And yeah, you don't need them. You know, there's always another way. And one of my last questions is about the Bumblebee hotels. I've seen you post pictures of them. I've seen them in stores. I want to make one. I've never actually seen one in use where those little cute Bumblebee tushes sticking out. If I build one and <laughs> stick it out there, are they just going to find it? Um, so th there's a distinction to be made between a bumblebee hotel 
and a solitary BHL. Um, bumblebees have big nests with a queen and three or 400 workers, so they need a big cavity. And you can buy bumblebee nest boxes, but they don't usually work. Um, but the bee hotels that have lots and lots of holes, mm-hmm. usually drilled in a block of wood or a bunch of bamboo canes sawn up and stuffed in some kind of housing, um, those are aimed at solitary bees, mainly mason bees, um, which where a female bee just makes her own little nest. Um, but lots of them will happily nest alongside each other. Each of them takes their own hole. Uh, they work pretty well. Um, I, I, I have about 10 of those hotels in my garden. And it took, I think the first year I put them up, I didn't get any. Um, that was a while ago now. And I was a bit kind of disappointed. But then the next year, a few turned up and then the population just went Ooh. crazy. And now every hole is full every year. I've got thousands of them. And so it's, it's worth persevering. If you do make one or buy one, stick it on a, a side-facing fence or wall if you've got one, um, rather than a tree trunk. Um, in my garden anyway, if I put them on a tree trunk, the holes all fill up with earwigs, uh, which are fine. I quite like earwigs, but I prefer to have the bees. Um, uh, so, but yeah, you know, it's really easy. Roughly eight millimeter drill bit, get a lump of wood, drill as many horizontal holes as you can be bothered to drill or until the battery runs out. And then uh, hang that bit of wood on a, on a wall or fence in the sun and cross your fingers. And with a bit of luck, um, you'll get a whole bunch of happy bees moving. I'm absolutely going to do that this year. All right. What's next after Silent Earth? You're working on some more papers, any more publications? Yeah, there's always more papers coming out. I've got a whole bunch of PhD students busy doing different things. Um, and I, I'm um, writing a children's encyclopedia of insects, um, which will be fun. I'm hoping to, you know, help to kind of keep those kids in their bug phase as long as possible. I'm still in mine. <laughs> Excellent. Glad to hear. Dave, where can listeners find your books, find your publications, go to one of your classes, maybe? So the, 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 the new book, Silent Earth, is available in the US. It's uh, published by um, HarperCollins. Uh, you can find me online, Twitter. Uh, I've got loads of YouTube videos of um, all sorts of things about bee hotels and which plants to grow in your garden and generally how to, how to do stuff to encourage insects. Um, so I'm not hard to find uh, if anyone if anyone wants to. And my last question is, do you even fish? Have you been fishing before? Yeah, I, I used to fish a lot when I was a kid. I, I was pretty incompetent, but I used to used to love it. And I taught my own kids to fish. Um, but uh, but I must admit, it's a couple of years since I since I last went. So How far are you from Oxford? About 100 miles. OK, my friend Andy guides in the Cotswolds. Okay. Yeah. Nice part of the world. Mm -hmm. My friend lives in Winchester, not far from you. Winchester. Yeah. That's probably a similar distance. It's off to the west again. Yeah. They have fantastic chalk streams around uh, Winchester. Beautiful, clear water, really lovely place to go fishing. Our friend is always posting close-ups of swans. Do they not attack people there? You don't get close (laughs) to swans here. Do you not know they're really tame here? They they um they've been protected by law for thousands of years. Um, only the queen is back to the queen. The queen is allowed to eat swan apparently. 
but yeah, they'll they, they get a bit feisty, but because people often feed them bread, um, they're they're really used to people, and they'll come, you know, to within a a, a yard or two of you without any difficulty at all. My goodness, and I don't know anyone that's been attacked. You come here; it's all it's 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 quite often. Unfortunately, yeah, I wonder why. Are they the same species, the big white mute swans, or is, have you got yeah, some farm swans and trumpeters? Apparently, the Potomac name translates in Algonquin to River of Swans. There used to be a lot of the wild ones here. Wow. Like everything else that was abundant here, they're all gone. Yeah, well, probably because you didn't have the queen to say that only she could eat them. Absolutely. All right. It's after all. Well, Dave, thank you so much for your time. And when I start consuming more books, I'm going to definitely get Silent Earth. It's been a busy year for me and I haven't been reading as much, unfortunately. It's on my list. And if you do, um, let me know what you think. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care. All right. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.